Chapter 9, Part 2 of The Life of Cicero, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume 1, by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 9, Catiline, Part 2. The second conspiracy was attempted in the consulship of Cicero, B.C. 63, two years after the first. Catiline had struggled for the consulship and had failed. Again there would be no province, no plunder, no power. This interference, as it must have seemed to him with his peculiar privileges, had all come from Cicero. Cicero was the busybody who was attempting to stop the order of things which had, to his thinking, been specially ordained by all the gods for the sustenance of one so well-born and at the same time so poor as himself. There was a vulgar meddling about it, all coming from the violent virtue of a consul whose father had been a nobody at Arpinum, which was well calculated to drive Catiline into madness. So he went to work, and got together in Rome a body of men as discontented and almost as nobly born as himself, and in the country north of Rome an army of rebels, and began his operations with very little secrecy. In all the story the most remarkable feature is the openness with which many of the details of the conspiracy were carried on. The existence of the rebel army was known, it was known that Catiline was the leader, the causes of his disaffection were known, his comrades in guilt were known. When any special act was intended, such as might be the murder of the consul, or the firing of the city, secret plots were concocted in abundance but the grand fact of a widespread conspiracy could go naked in Rome, and not even a Cicero dare to meddle with it. Side note, B.C. 63, Aetat 44. As to this second conspiracy, the conspiracy with which Sallust and Cicero have made us so well acquainted, there is no sufficient ground for asserting that Caesar was concerned in it. That he was greatly concerned in the treatment of the conspirators, there is no doubt, he had probably learned to appreciate the rage, the madness, the impotence of Catiline at their proper worth. He, too, I think, must have looked upon Cicero as a meddling, over-virtuous busybody, as did even Pompey when he returned from the East. What practical use could there be in such a man at such a time, in one who really believed in honesty, who thought of liberty and the Republic and imagined that he could set the world right by talking? Such must have been the feeling of Caesar, who had both experience and foresight to tell him that Rome wanted and must have a master. He probably had patriotism enough to feel that he, if he could acquire the mastership, would do something beyond robbery, would not satisfy himself with cutting the throats of all his enemies and feeding his supporters with the property of his opponents. But Cicero was impracticable, unless, indeed, he could be so flattered as to be made useful. It was thus, I think, that Caesar regarded Cicero, and thus that he induced Pompey to regard him. But now, in the year of his consulship, Cicero had really talked himself into power, and for this year his virtue must be allowed to have its full way. He did so much in this year, was so really efficacious in restraining for a time the greed and violence of the aristocracy, that it is not surprising that he was taught to believe in himself— there were, too, enough of others anxious for the Republic to bolster him up in his own belief. 
there was that Cornelius in whose defence Cicero made the two great speeches which have been unfortunately lost, and there was Cato, and up to this time there was Pompey, as Cicero thought. Cicero, till he found himself candidate for the consulship, had contented himself with undertaking separate cases, in which, no doubt, politics were concerned, but which were not exclusively political. He had advocated the employment of Pompey in the East, and had defended Cornelius. He was well acquainted with the history of the Republic, but he had probably never asked himself the question whether it was in mortal peril, and if so, whether it might possibly be saved. In his consulship he did do so, and, seeing less of the Republic than we can see now, told himself that it was possible. The stories told to us of Catiline's conspiracy by Sallust and by Cicero are so little conflicting that we can trust them both. Trusting them both, we are justified in believing that we know the truth. We are here concerned only with the part which Cicero took. Nothing, I think, which Cicero says is contradicted by Sallust, though of much of that Cicero certainly did, Sallust is silent. Sallust damns him, but only by faint praise. We may therefore take the account of the plot as given by Cicero himself as verified. Indeed, I am not aware that any of Cicero's facts have been questioned. Sallust declares that Catiline's attempt was popular in Rome generally. This, I think, must be taken as showing simply that revolution and conspiracy were in themselves popular, that, as a condition of things around him such as existed in Rome, a plotter of state plots should be able to collect a body of followers, was a thing of course. That there were many citizens who would not work, and who expected to live in luxury on public or private plunder, is certain. When the conspiracy was first announced in the Senate, Catiline had an army collected, but we have no proof that the hearts of the inhabitants of Rome generally were with the conspirators. On the other hand, we have proof, in the unparalleled devotion shown by the citizens to Cicero after the conspiracy was quelled, that their hearts were with him. The populace, fond of change, liked a disturbance, but there is nothing to show that Catiline was ever beloved as had been the Gracchi and other tribunes of the people who came after them. Catiline, in the autumn of the year B.C. 63, had arranged the outside circumstances of his conspiracy, knowing that he would for the third time be unsuccessful in his canvass for the consulship. That Cicero, with other senators, should be murdered seems to have been their first object, and that then the consulship should be seized by force. On the 21st of October Cicero made his first report to the Senate as to the conspiracy, and called upon Catiline for his answer. It was then that Catiline made his famous reply, that the Republic had two bodies, of which one was weak and had a bad head, meaning the aristocracy with Cicero as its chief, and the other strong, but without any head, meaning the people. But that as for himself, so well had the people deserved of him, that as long as he lived a head should be forthcoming. Then, at that sitting, the Senate decreed in the usual formula, that the consuls were to take care that the Republic did not suffer. On the 22nd of October, the new consuls, Silanus and Murena, were elected. On the 23rd, Catiline was regularly accused of conspiracy by Paulus Lepidus, a young nobleman, in conformity with the law which had been enacted fifty-five years earlier, de vi publica, as to violence applied to the state. 
Two days afterward it was officially reported that Manlius, or Malius, as he seems to have been generally called, Catiline's lieutenant, had openly taken up arms in Etruria. The twenty-seventh had been fixed by the conspirators for the murder of Cicero and the other senators. That all this was to be, and was so arranged by Catiline, had been declared in the Senate by Cicero himself, on that day when Catiline told them of the two bodies and the two heads. Cicero, with his intelligence, ingenuity, and industry, had learned every detail. There was one curious among the conspirators, a fair specimen of the young Roman nobleman of the day, who told it all to his mistress, Fulvia, and she carried the information to the consul. It is all narrated with fair dramatic accuracy in Ben Jonson's dull play, though he has attributed to Caesar a share in the plot, for doing which he had no authority. Cicero, on that sitting in the Senate, had been specially anxious to make Catiline understand that he knew privately every circumstance of the plot. Throughout the whole conspiracy his object was not to take Catiline, but to drive him out of Rome. If the people could be stirred up to kill him in their wrath, that might be well, in that way there might be an end of all the trouble. But if that did not come to pass, then it would be best to make the city unbearable to the conspirators. If they could be driven out, they must either take themselves to foreign parts and be dispersed, or must else fight and assuredly be conquered. Cicero himself was never bloodthirsty, but the necessity was strong upon him of ridding the Republic from these bloodthirsty men. The scheme for destroying Cicero and the senators on the 27th of October had proved abortive. On the 6th of the next month, a meeting was held in the house of one Marcus Porcius Laica, at which a plot was arranged for the killing of Cicero the next day, for the killing of Cicero alone, he having been by this time found to be the one great obstacle in their path. Two knights were told off for the service, named Vagunteus and Cornelius, these, after the Roman fashion, were to make their way early on the following morning into the consul's bedroom, for the ostensible purpose of paying him their morning compliments, but, when there, they were to slay him. All this, however, was told to Cicero, and the two knights, when they came, were refused admittance. If Cicero had been a man given to fear, as has been said of him, he must have passed a wretched life at this period. As far as I can judge of his words and doings throughout his life, he was not harassed by constitutional timidity. He feared to disgrace his name, to lower his authority, to become small in the eyes of men, to make political mistakes, to do that which might turn against him. In much of this there was a falling off from that dignity which, if we do not often find it in a man, we can all of us imagine. But of personal dread as to his own skin, as to his own life, there was very little. At this time when, as he knew well, many men with many weapons in their hands, men who were altogether unscrupulous, were in search for his blood, he never seems to have trembled. But all Rome trembled, even according to Sallust. I have already shown how he declares in one part of his narrative that the common people as a body were with Catiline, and have attempted to explain what was meant by that expression. In another, in an earlier chapter, he says that the state, meaning the city, was disturbed by all this, and its appearance changed. Instead of the joy and ease which had lately prevailed, the effect of the long peace, 
a sudden sadness fell upon everyone. I quote the passage because that other passage has been taken as proving the popularity of Catiline. There can, I think, be no doubt that the population of Rome was, as a body, afraid of Catiline. The city was to be burnt down, the consuls and the senate were to be murdered, debts were to be wiped out, slaves were probably to be encouraged against their masters. The permota civitas and the cuncta plebes of which Sallust speaks mean that all the householders were disturbed and that all the roughs were eager with revolutionary hopes. On the 8th of November, the day after that on which the consul was to have been murdered in his own house, he called a special meeting of the Senate in the temple of Jupiter Stator. The Senate in Cicero's time was convened according to expedience, or perhaps as to the dignity of the occasion, in various temples. Of these none had a higher reputation than that of the special Jupiter who was held to have befriended Romulus in his fight with the Sabines. Here was launched that thunderbolt of eloquence which all English schoolboys have known for its quusque tandem abutere Catilina, patientia nostra. Whether it be from the awe which has come down to me from my earliest years, mixed perhaps with something of dread for the great pedagogue who first made the words to sound grandly in my ears, or whether true critical judgment has since approved to me the real weight of the words, they certainly do contain for my intelligence an expression of almost divine indignation. Then there follows a string of questions, which to translate would be vain, which to quote, for those who read the language, is surely unnecessary. It is said to have been a fault with Cicero that in his speeches he runs too much into that vein of wrathful interrogation, which undoubtedly palls upon us in English oratory, when frequent resort is made to it. It seems to be too easy, and to contain too little of argument. It was this, probably, of which his contemporaries complained, when they declared him to be florid, redundant, and Asiatic in his style. This questioning runs through nearly the whole speech, but the reader cannot fail to acknowledge its efficacy in reference to the matter in hand. Catiline was sitting there himself in the Senate, and the questions were for the most part addressed to him. We can see him now, a man of large frame, with bold, glaring eyes, looking in his wrath as though he were hardly able to keep his hands from the consul's throat even there in the Senate. Though he knew that this attack was to be made on him, he had stalked into the temple and seated himself in a place of honour among the benches intended for those who had been consuls. When there, no one spoke to him, no one saluted him. The consular senators shrunk away, leaving their places of privilege. Even his brother conspirators, of whom many were present, did not dare to recognise him. Lentulus was no doubt there, and Cethegus and two of the Sullen family, and Cassius Longinus, and Autronius, and Lyca, and Curius. All of them were, or had been, conspirators in the same cause. Caesar was there too, and Crassus. A fellow conspirator with Catiline would probably be a senator. Cicero knew them all. We cannot say that in this matter Caesar was guilty, but Cicero no doubt felt that Caesar's heart was with Catiline. It was his present task so to thunder with his eloquence that he should turn these bitter enemies into seeming friends, to drive Catiline from out of the midst of them, so that it should seem that he had been expelled by those who were in truth his brother conspirators. 
and this it was that he did. He declared the nature of the plot, and boldly said that, such being the facts, Catiline deserved death. If, he says, I should order you to be taken and killed, believe me, I should be blamed rather for my delay in doing so than for my cruelty. He spoke throughout as though all the power were in his own hands either to strike or to forbear, but it was his object to drive him out and not to kill him. Go, he said, that camp of yours and Malleus, your lieutenant, are too long without you. Take your friends with you, take them all, cleanse the city of your presence. When its walls are between you and me, then I shall feel myself secure. Among us here you may no longer stir yourself. I will not have it. I will not endure it. If I were to suffer you to be killed, your followers in the conspiracy would remain here. But if you go out, as I desire you, this cesspool of filth will drain itself off from out the city. Do you hesitate to do at my command that which you would fain do yourself? The consul requires an enemy to depart from the city. Do you ask me whether you are to go into exile? I do not order it. But if you ask my counsel, I advise it. Exile was the severest punishment known by the Roman law as applicable to a citizen, and such a punishment it was in the power of no consul or other officer of state to inflict. Though he had taken upon himself the duty of protecting the Republic, still he could not condemn a citizen. It was to the moral effect of his words that he must trust. Non jubeo, sed sime consulis, suadeo. Catiline heard him to the end, and then, muttering a curse, left the senate and went out of the city. Sallust tells us that he threatened to extinguish, in the midst of the general ruin he would create, the flames prepared for his own destruction. Sallust, however, was not present on the occasion, and the threat probably had been uttered at an earlier period of Catiline's career. Cicero tells us expressly, in one of his subsequent works, that Catiline was struck dumb. Of this first Catiline oration, Sallust says that Marcus Tullius the consul, either fearing the presence of the man, or stirred to anger, made a brilliant speech, very useful to the Republic. This, coming from an enemy, is stronger testimony to the truth of the story told by Cicero than would have been any vehement praise from the pen of a friend. Catiline met some of his colleagues the same night. They were the very men who, as senators, had been present at his confusion, and to them he declared his purpose of going. There was nothing to be done in the city by him. The consul was not to be reached. Catiline himself was too closely watched for personal action. He would join the army at Faisulae, and then return and burn the city. His friends, Lentulus, Cetigus, and the others, were to remain and be ready for fire and slaughter as soon as Catiline with his army should appear before the walls. He went, and Cicero had been so far successful. But these men, Lentulus, Cethegus, and the other senators, though they had not dared to sit near Catiline in the Senate, or to speak a word to him, went about their work zealously when evening had come. A report was spread among the people that the consul had taken upon himself to drive a citizen into exile. Catiline, the ill-used Catiline, Catiline, the friend of the people, had, they said, gone to Marseilles in order that he might escape the fury of the tyrant consul. 
In this we see the jealousy of Romans as to the infliction of any punishment by an individual officer on a citizen. It was with a full knowledge of what was likely to come that Cicero had ironically declared that he only advised the conspirator to go. The feeling was so strong that on the next morning he found himself compelled to address the people on the subject. Then was uttered the second Catiline oration, which was spoken in the open air to the citizens at large. Here, too, there are words among those with which he began his speech, almost as familiar to us as the quosque tandem, abiit, excessit, evasit, erupit. This Catiline, says Cicero, this pest of his country, raging in his madness, I have turned out of the city. If you like it better, I have expelled him by my very words. He has departed, he has fled, he has gone out from among us, he has broken away. I have made this conspiracy plain to you all, as I said I would, unless indeed there may be someone here who does not believe that the friends of Catiline will do the same as Catiline would have done. But there is no time now for soft measures. We have to be strong-handed. There is one thing I will do for these men. Let them too go out, so that Catiline shall not pine for them. I will show them the road. He has gone by the Via Aurelia. If they will hurry, they may catch him before night. He implies by this that the story about Marseille was false. Then he speaks with irony of himself as that violent consul who could drive citizens into exile by the very breath of his mouth. Ego vehemens ele consul qui verbo quives in exilium eicio. So he goes on, in truth defending himself, but leading them with him to take part in the accusation which he intends to bring against the chief conspirators who remain in the city. If they too will go, they may go unscathed. If they choose to remain, let them look to themselves. Through it all we can see that there is but one thing that he fears, that he shall be driven by the exigencies of the occasion to take some steps which shall afterwards be judged not to have been strictly legal, and which shall put him into the power of his enemies, when the day of his ascendancy shall have passed away. It crops out repeatedly in these speeches. He seems to be aware that some over-strong measure will be forced upon him, for which he alone will be held responsible. If he can only avoid that, he will fear nothing else. If he cannot avoid it, he will encounter even that danger. His foresight was wonderfully accurate. The strong hand was used, and the punishment came upon him, not from his enemies, but from his friends, almost to the bursting of his heart. Though the Senate had decreed that the consuls were to see that the Republic should take no harm, and though it was presumed that extraordinary power was thereby conferred, it is evident that no power was conferred of inflicting punishment. Antony, as Cicero's colleague, was nothing. The authority, the responsibility, the action, were and were intended to remain with Cicero. He could not legally banish anyone. It was only too evident that there must be much slaughter. There was the army of rebels with which it would be necessary to fight. Let them go, these rebels within the city, and either join the army and get themselves killed, or else disappear whither they would among the provinces. The object of this second Catiline oration, spoken to the people, was to convince the remaining conspirators that they had better go, and to teach the citizens generally that in giving such counsel he was banishing no one. 
As far as the citizens were concerned, he was successful, but he did not induce the friends of Catiline to follow their chief. This took place on the 9th of November. After the oration, the Senate met again, and declared Catiline and Malleus to be public enemies. Twenty-four days elapsed before the third speech was spoken, twenty-four days during which Rome must have been in a state of very great fever. Cicero was actively engaged in unravelling the plots, the details of which were still being carried on within the city, but nevertheless he made that speech from Arena before the judicial bench, of which I gave an account in the last chapter, and also probably another for Piso, of which we have nothing left. We cannot but marvel that he should have been able at such a time to devote his mind to such subjects, and carefully to study all the details of legal cases. It was only on October the 21st that Morena had been elected consul, and yet on the 20th of November Cicero defended him with great skill on a charge of bribery. There is an ease, a playfulness, a softness, a drollery about this speech which appears to be almost incompatible with the stern, absorbing realities and great personal dangers in the midst of which he was placed. But the agility of his mind was such that there appears to have been no difficulty to him in these rapid changes. On the same day, the 20th of November, when Cicero was defending Morena, the plot was being carried on at the house of a certain Roman lady named Sempronia. It was she of whom Sallust had said that she danced better than became an honest woman. If we can believe Sallust, she was steeped in luxury and vice. At her house a most vile project was hatched for introducing into Rome Rome's bitterest foreign foes. There were in the city at this time certain delegates from a people called the Allobroges, who inhabited the lower part of Savoy. The Allobroges were of Gaulish race. They were warlike, angry, and at the present moment peculiarly discontented with Rome. There had been certain injuries, either real or presumed, respecting which these delegates had been sent to the city. There they had been delayed and fobbed off with official replies which gave no satisfaction, and were supposed to be ready to do any evil possible to the Republic. What if they could be got to go back suddenly to their homes, and bring a legion of red-haired Gauls to assist the conspirators in burning down Rome? A deputation from the delegates came to Sempronia's house, and there met the conspirators, Lentulus and others. They entered freely into the project, but having, as was usual with foreign embassies at Rome, a patron or peculiar friend of their own among the aristocracy, one Fabius Sanger by name, they thought it well to consult him. Sanger, as a matter of course, told everything to our astute consul. Then the matter was arranged with more than all the craft of a modern inspector of police. The Allobroges were instructed to lend themselves to the device, stipulating, however, that they should have a written, signed authority which they could show to their rulers at home. The written, signed documents were given to them. With certain conspirators to help them out of the city, they were sent on their way. At a bridge over the Tiber they were stopped by Cicero's emissaries. There was a feigned fight, but no blood was shed, and the ambassadors, with their letters, were brought home to the consul. We are astonished at the marvellous folly of these conspirators, so that we could hardly have believed the story had it not been told alike by Cicero and by Sallust, and had not allusion to the details been common among later writers. The ambassadors were taken at the Milvian Bridge early on the morning of the 3rd of December, 
and in the course of that day Cicero sent for the leaders of the conspiracy to come to him. Lentulus, who was then praetor, Cethegus, Gabinius, and Statilius all obeyed the summons. They did not know what had occurred, and probably thought that their best hope of safety lay in compliance. Caeparius was also sent for, but he for the moment escaped, in vain, for before two days were over he had been taken, and put to death with the others. Cicero again called the Senate together, and entered the meeting, leading the guilty praetor by the hand. Here the offenders were examined, and practically acknowledged their guilt. The proofs against them were so convincing that they could not deny it. There were the signatures of some, arms were found hidden in the house of another. The Senate decreed that the men should be kept in durance, till some decision as to their fate should have been pronounced. Each of them was then given in custody to some noble Roman of the day. Lentulus the praetor was confided to the keeping of a censor, Cethegus to Cornificius, Statilius to Caesar, Gabinius to Crassus, and Caeparius, who had not fled very far before he was taken, to one Terentius. We can imagine how willingly would Crassus and Caesar have let their men go had they dared. But Cicero was in the ascendant. Caesar, whom we can imagine to have understood that the hour had not yet come for putting an end to the effete republic, and to have perceived also that Catiline was no fit helpmate for him in such a work, must bide his time, and for the moment obey. That he was inclined to favour the conspirators, there is no doubt, but at present he could befriend them only in accordance with the law. The Allobroges were rewarded. The praetors in the city who had assisted Cicero were thanked, to Cicero himself a supplication was decreed. A supplication was, in its origin, a thanksgiving to the gods on account of a victory, but it had come to be an honour shown to the general who had gained the victory. In this case it was simply a means of adding glory to Cicero, and was peculiar, as hitherto the reward had only been conferred for military service. Remembering that, we can understand what at the time must have been the feeling in Rome, as to the benefits conferred by the activity and patriotism of the consul. On the evening of the same day, the 3rd of December, Cicero again addressed the people, explaining to them what he had done, and what he had before explained in the Senate. This was the third Catiline speech, and for rapid narrative is perhaps surpassed by nothing that he ever spoke. He explains again the motives by which he had been actuated, and in doing so extols the courage, the sagacity, the activity of Catiline, while he ridicules the folly and the fury of the others. Had Catiline remained, he says, we should have been forced to fight with him here in the city, but with Lentulus the sleepy, and Cassius the fat, and Cethegus the mad, it has been comparatively easy to deal. It was on this account that he had got rid of him, knowing that their presence would do no harm. Then he reminds the people of all that the gods have done for them, and addresses them in language which makes one feel that they did believe in their gods. It is one instance, one out of many which history and experience afford us, in which an honest and a good man has endeavoured to use for salutary purposes a faith in which he has not himself participated. Does the bishop of to-day, when he calls upon his clergy to pray for fine weather, believe that the Almighty will change the ordained seasons, and cause his causes to be inoperative, because farmers are anxious for their hay or for their wheat? But he feels that when men are in trouble, it is well that they should hold communion with the powers of heaven. 
so much also Cicero believed, and therefore spoke as he did on this occasion. As to his own religious views, I shall say something in a future chapter. Then, in a passage most beautiful for its language, though it is hardly in accordance with our idea of the manner in which a man should speak of himself, he explains his own ambition. For all which, my fellow countrymen, I ask for no other recompense, no ornament or honour, no monument, but that this day may live in your memories. It is within your breasts that I would garner and keep fresh my triumph, my glory, the trophies of my exploits. No silent, voiceless statue, nothing which can be bestowed upon the worthless, can give me delight. Only by your remembrance can my fortunes be nurtured. By your good words, by the records which you shall cause to be written, can they be strengthened and perpetuated. I do think that this day, the memory of which I trust may be eternal, will be famous in history because the city has been preserved, and because my consulship has been glorious. He ends the paragraph by an allusion to Pompey, admitting Pompey to a brotherhood of patriotism and praise. We shall see how Pompey repaid him. How many things must have been astir in his mind when he spoke those words of Pompey, in the next sentence he tells the people of his own danger. He has taken care of their safety. It is for them to take care of his. But they, these quirites, these Roman citizens, these masters of the world, by whom everything was supposed to be governed, could take care of no one, certainly not of themselves, as certainly not of another. They could only vote, now this way and now that, as somebody might tell them, or more probably as somebody might pay them. Pompey was coming home, and would soon be the favourite. Cicero must have felt that he had deserved much of Pompey, but was by no means sure that the debt of gratitude would be paid. Now we come to the fourth or last Catiline oration, which was made to the Senate, convened on the 5th of December with the purpose of deciding the fate of the leading conspirators who were held in custody. We learn to what purport were three of the speeches made during this debate, those of Caesar and of Cato and of Cicero. The first two are given to us by Sallust, but we can hardly think that we have the exact words. The Caesarian spirit which induced Sallust to ignore altogether the words of Cicero would have induced him to give his own representation of the other two, even though we were to suppose that he had been able to have them taken down by shorthand writers. Cicero's words, we have no doubt, with such polishing as may have been added to the shorthand writer's notes by Tyro, his slave and secretary. The three are compatible enough with the other, and we are entitled to believe that we know the line of argument used by the three orators. Silanus, one of the consuls-elect, began the debate by counselling death. We may take it for granted that he had been persuaded by Cicero to make this proposition. During the discussion he trembled at the consequences, and declared himself for an adjournment of their decision till they should have dealt with Catiline. Murena, the other consul-elect, and Catulus, the prince of the senate, spoke for death. Tiberius Nero, grandfather of Tiberius the emperor, made that proposition for adjournment to which Silanus gave way. Then, or I should say rather in the course of the debate, for we do not know who else may have spoken, Caesar got up and made his proposition. His purpose was to save the victims, 
but he knew well that with such a spirit abroad as that existing in the senate and the city he could only do so not by absolving but by condemning wicked as these men might be abominably wicked it was he said for the senate to think of their own dignity rather than of the enormity of the crime as they could not he suggested invent any new punishment adequate to so abominable a crime it would be better that they should leave the conspirators to be dealt with by the ordinary laws it was thus that cunningly he threw out the idea that as senators they had no power of death he did not dare to tell them directly that any danger would menace them but he exposed the danger skilfully before their eyes their crimes he says again deserve worse than any torture you can inflict but men generally recollect what comes last when the punishment is severe men will remember the severity rather than the crime he argues all this extremely well the speech is one of great ingenuity whether the words be the words of sallust or of caesar we may doubt indeed whether the general assertion he made as to death had much weight with the senators when he told them that death to the wicked was a relief whereas life was a lasting punishment but when he went on to remind them of the lex porcia by which the power of punishing a roman citizen even under the laws was limited to banishment unless by a plebiscite of the people generally ordering death then he was efficacious he ended by proposing that the goods of the conspirators should be sold and that the men should be condemned to imprisonment for life each in some separate town this would i believe have been quite as illegal as the death sentence but it would not have been irrevocable the senate or the people in the next year could have restored to the men their liberty and compensated them for their property cicero was determined that the men should die they had not obeyed him by leaving the city and he was convinced that while they lived the conspiracy would live also he fully understood the danger and resolved to meet it he replied to caesar and with infinite skill refrained from the expression of any strong opinion while he led his hearers to the conviction that death was necessary for himself he had been told of his danger but if a man be brave in his duty death cannot be disgraceful to him to one who had reached the honours of the consulship it could not be premature to no wise man could it be a misery though his brother though his wife though his little boy and his daughter just married were warning him of his peril not by all that would he be influenced do you he says conscript fathers look to the safety of the republic these are not the gracchi nor saturninus who are brought to you for judgment men who broke the laws indeed and therefore suffered death but who still were not unpatriotic these men had sworn to burn the city to slay the senate to force catiline upon you as a ruler the proofs of this are in your own hands it was for me as your consul to bring the facts before you now it is for you at once before night to decide what shall be done the conspirators are very many it is not only with these few that you are dealing on whatever you decide decide quickly caesar tells you of the sempronian law the law namely forbidding the death of a roman citizen but can he be regarded as a citizen who has been found in arms against the city then there is a fling at caesar's assumed clemency 
showing us that Caesar had already endeavoured to make capital out of that virtue which he displayed afterwards so signally at Elysia and Uxilidunum. Then again he speaks of himself in words so grand that it is impossible but to sympathise with him. Let Scipio's name be glorious, he by whose wisdom and valour Hannibal was forced out of Italy. Let Africanus be praised loudly, who destroyed Carthage and Numantia, the two cities which were most hostile to Rome. Let Paulus be regarded as great, he whose triumph that great king Perses adorned. Let Marius be held in undying honour, who twice saved Italy from foreign yoke. Let Pompey be praised above all, whose noble deeds are as wide as the sun's course. Perhaps among them there may be a spot, too, for me. Unless, indeed, to win provinces to which we may take ourselves in exile is more than to guard that city to which the conquerors of provinces may return in safety. The last words of the orator also are fine. Therefore, conscript fathers, decide wisely and without fear. Your own safety, and that of your wives and children, that of your hearths and altars, the temples of your gods, the homes contained in your city, your liberty, the welfare of Italy, and of the whole republic, are at stake. It is for you to decide. In me you have a consul who will obey your decrees, and will see that they be made to prevail while the breath of life remains to him. Cato then spoke, advocating death, and the Senate decreed that the men should die. Cicero himself led Lentulus down to the vaulted prison below, in which executioners were ready for the work, and the other four men were made to follow. A few minutes afterward, in the gleaming of the evening, when Cicero was being led home by the applauding multitude, he was asked after the fate of the conspirators. He answered them but by one word, Vixerunt. There is said to have been a superstition with the Romans as to all mention of death. They have lived their lives. As to what was being done outside Rome, with the army of conspirators in Etruria, it is not necessary for the biographer of Cicero to say much. Catiline fought and died fighting. The conspiracy was then over. On the 31st of December, Cicero retired from his office, and Catiline fell at the Battle of Pistoia on the 5th of January following, B.C. 62. A Roman historian writing in the reign of Tiberius has thought it worth his while to remind us that a great glory was added to Cicero's consular year by the birth of Augustus, him who afterwards became Augustus Caesar. Had a Roman been living now, he might be excused for saying that it was an honour to Augustus to have been born in the year of Cicero's consulship. End of chapter 9